This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is 2024 U.S. Independent Presidential Candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We cover a lot of ground here, including ground that I have not heard him cover anywhere else. And now, without further ado, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Thank you so much for taking this time. I know how busy you are since we last talked. You announced your candidacy as an independent, and uh, and here we are back, and it's, a, it's such an honor for me to be able to talk to you today. So thank you so much for taking the time. The, uh, the honor is mine. I'm a huge fan of yours, Jack, and I'm happy for every opportunity to talk to you. So this is no, uh, this will be fun. Yeah, I feel the same way. And uh, for those who didn't hear our previous podcast on yours, um, on your podcast, we met uh, in August of uh, late July, August, early August of 2017, uh, Megan Townsend's wedding to Billy Birdzell, a Marine buddy of mine uh, out in Hyannisport. Megan Townsend, which nobody will know, is my niece, my sister's uh, eldest daughter and she married a, uh, a compatriot of, of, of Jack's who had, I think he fought in Iraq with you. That's right. We were in Najaf, the battle for Najaf at the same time, but we met afterward, even though we were there at the same time. Uh, and then we ended up doing uh, some operations in Mali, of all places. And Billy Birdsell, and they live right down the road from me, and uh, we're very close. Uh, Jack was one of the the uh, ushers in his wedding, so I got to meet you for the first time in 2017 at Cape Cod. Yep, yeah. The Kennedy compound, and um, you know, I've been part of your admiration society ever since. Oh, well, thank you. I sincerely appreciate that, and uh, and I got to escort uh, your your mom the next day to the christening, and then to breakfast, and then I got to sit with her and. It inspired my latest novel, Only the Dead. And for people who have read it, um, they'll know the character that uh, that your your mom inspired. Um, but that came from that time, from summer of 2017, that uh, that that part of the the last novel. So uh, I'm indebted in more ways than one because it was the the uh, the best novel to date. I haven't made it to that one yet. I might have to wait till the end of the campaign because I've got a lot of. <laughs> Uh, uh, mandatory reading that I got to do. But I, I'm looking forward to that. You are, yeah, you're a little busy. And um, so I want to make sure that I get to campaign priorities because I have nine pages of notes and I know we're not going to, might, we might scratch the surface. So I want to start with your priorities uh, in the campaign to make sure that we hit those. Um, but right before I do that, just because it was in the, the news this morning, um, and I have this right here from your, uh, uh, your website and it's a request for, to Secretary Mayorkas for Secret Service uh, support, protection. Uh, and I think it was just a few few days ago where another person um, broke onto your rear property. Um, and this comes uh, about a month after someone identified themselves as a U.S. Marshal trying to get in the back door of an event, demanding to see you armed with two handguns. Um, why do you think that uh, those requests thus far 
anyway, at the time of this recording, uh, have been denied when there's a, a history and a very, it's a very interesting history because it shows uh, compassion on both sides of the aisle to afford secret service protection to people who are uh, uh, adversaries and have been attacking one another essentially in, in the press for months on end. And that secret service protection up to this point has been afforded. And it's a, it's a very rich history, I think. Um, and in this case, it has been turned down multiple times. What's, what's going on there? The, well, let me tell you what happened yesterday. My, my wife was, uh, who, you know, you know, is uh, actress Cheryl Hines, um, was in her office and she was doing a Facebook Live. She has a company that, you know, has a, like uh, health and wellness uh, uh, creams that she, that she makes. She was doing a Facebook Live for that and she saw a guy come over the fence and uh, and then she saw I have a security team that I pay for now um, and they uh, they had guns drawn and they were chasing him and and, uh, and they apprehended him and, and handcuffed him. Um, so and then he was then the police came, took him into custody, asked me, you know, what, whether I wanted a protective order. And I said, yeah, I would like a protective order. This gentleman incidentally has sent me i think 449 emails over the last three months including last week uh one that talked about putting a bullet in my brain you know that's a quote from him and um and the police took him into custody and two hours later he was back at my house again climbing the fence again um the other guy that you talked about came to my event to a, a speech that I did on a, at a theater on Wilshire here in Los Angeles. It was a big Hispanic event. And he asked to be uh, admitted into my green room. Uh, and one of my security team, I, Gavin DeBecker, associates of the kind of premier security team, noticed that his badge, his uh, U.S. Marshal badge was a little too shiny. He had it on a lanyard, and then he had federal ID, uh, law enforcement ID on his belt. Um, and they uh, they apprehended him. He had two shoulder holsters with uh, with full magazines, eight rounds each. And then he had about, I, I think, five or six extra magazines in his backpack. He had another pistol that was loaded in his backpack and he had knives and other weapons. And then, you know, when the police went into his house, uh, they were filled with uh, rifles and and uh, of various kinds, uh, ARs and, and uh, sniper rifles. And he just before he left to come visit me, he cut a uh, TikTok tape that said, you know, I'm on a mission uh, and, you know, if I don't come back from it and call your commander in chief. Uh, so it had all of the ingredients of, you know, then of somebody who, you know, might pose a genuine menace. Now, we had a, about a two months before that, three months before that, we had requested Secret Service protection and we had provided the Secret Service with 68 pages of detail about threats against me. I get death threats, as you might imagine, quite often. And, uh, and you know, the, 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 the rule is, the rule was, was made 
originally the Secret Service was only given to uh, to nominees, so the after the convention. But after my dad was killed in 1968, they all of the uh, all of the candidates were at that point immediately given secret service protection and then congress changed the rules so that uh, people are entitled to secret service protection 120 days before the general election they're entitled to it then uh but they are uh, it, it's pro forma to give it to them earlier so my uncle teddy got it before he even announced I, and I, i'm in the same position as he, he was running against a president of his own party, uh, Jimmy Carter. And Carter gave it to him, you know, Carter was a gentleman and just gave it to him uh, before he even announced. I think he got it uh, 440, uh, let me, let me, I actually- 441 days. 441 days. And then uh, Barack Obama got it 551 days out. Right now, uh, we're, you know, coming up on November, so it's almost exactly one year out. Uh, so it'd be 300, like 375 days. Clinton got it 249 days. Pat Buchanan, 258 days. Pat Robertson, 343 days. Uh, George McGovern, 297. McCain got it 200. Uh, Newt Gingrich, 245. Mitt Romney, 279. Rick Santorum, 254. Ernie Sanders, 279, and Joe Biden, 231. So that's interesting. So they all got it further out than uh, 120. I'm the first uh, presidential candidate in history that has requested Secret Service and then been denied. Uh, When we, you know, Gavin DeBecker uh, talked uh, very, very, and in detail with the Secret Service, the Secret Service was wonderful. And they initially told us this is a no-brainer we expect that you know we have eight details that are uh that are ready to go and uh we expect this will be approved within 10 days and 14 days at the most and we'll probably do the, start interviewing you 10 days before because they come and do a preliminary interview to answer your questions about how it works are they going to go to the gym with me are they going to go out on you know if they take us on dates do we drive ourselves all those questions that normally you would you would have right even though i've been around secret service a lot of my life i don't know how that stuff works so they come and explain it to you so um they uh they said, you'll, you'll hear back from us within 10 days, 14 days at the most. And we didn't hear from them again for 88 days. And I got a letter from Secretary Mayorkas, who's the director of, um, of Department of Homeland Security. And he said, uh, we've made a determination. You don't need Secret Service protection. Now, this, we now have, because we got it from FOIA, from the Freedom of Information Law, the Secret Service risk assessment that tells me York is he is at elevated risk. So the decision was a political decision. Um, and I don't, you know, I can't tell you what their rationale was. Uh, I assume that what they, uh, that, uh, there, there was probably two ingredients that one, they, it kind of gives a legitimacy to my campaign that they don't want to give to it, you know, it, and the other is they understand I need I need to have protection, so my campaign is going to have to pay for it, and that's going to cost me millions. It's already cost me over a million dollars, and um, and they would rather me be spending that million dollars on 
security than spending it on field organization, et cetera. So I, this again, Jack, is just speculation. I don't know. I can't look into their heads. I can tell you this, that I, I am, you know, I, I'm not, I don't worry about my personal safety, as I'm sure you don't worry, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about that because that's just not the way my mind works. I do worry about my family and particularly their sense of well-being. You know, I want my wife to feel safe in her home and I want, you know, her daughter to feel safe in my home. And um, and and the other thing is there, there, you know, if there was an incident, like if this guy who came fully loaded, people don't go, he, you know, he's later claimed this guy who, who visited me and, and uh, at the theater, he later claimed he was coming for a job interview, but you don't bring, you know, you don't bring extra clips. Not if, extra you, don't want Not if you want the job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, but, and so I worry that if, if somebody like that, if there was an incident and somebody was taking pot shops at me, somebody in, you know, a bystander may be injured and exactly. it, it's, it's a danger to everybody. It's a danger to the public. Um, and so, you know, but the bigger worry I actually have, the most troubling part is that um, we've seen this weaponization, the politicization of the uh, of the law, federal law enforcement agencies across the board. Yeah. And you know what I'm talking about. My father, when he got when he became attorney general, his first weekend, he summons the entire upper staff of the all the directors, all the branches of the attorney general's office. And he said, um, the number one rule in this office is that there's not going to be any politicization of the Justice Department, which is always a temptation, you know, for presidents to pro per prosecute or persecute or prosecute their uh, political enemies, you know, people who to, to look into, you know, did they violate antitrust? And they violate IRS laws. Is there something else that I can do to hurt this person who is a political rival? My father ended up prosecuting his own brother-in-law for under antitrust law because he he bought a, a sports team, what is now the Atlanta Braves, and um, and he prosecuted him for it. And the you know and the people in that department knew a lot of his political allies got prosecuted. People he liked. A prosecutor under him because he said there's no politicization and that is that is critical for a democracy that the public has faith that the law enforcement agencies are administering the law uh, with neutrality with you know justice is supposed to be blind and prosecution is supposed to be blind as well so we've seen this you know president Biden is uh providing protection to his his family uh, to Hunter Biden, to you know other members of his family, uh, that costs millions and millions of dollars, and he uh, he's providing it to Anthony Fauci um, at a, a million dollars a month, uh, to John Bolton, to many people who haven't even been in government for many years, are all getting Secret Service protection, and it, I think the optics are bad for a democracy. You know, we're supposed to be the world's exemplary democracy. I think the optics are bad if if the president is giving protection to his friends, his families, his political allies, and denying it to his political uh, rivals. President Biden has a bust of my father right behind him in the Oval Office, and um, 
know, that amplifies the irony a little bit. But, but I'll, I'll say one other thing. I'm involved with a number of lawsuits against the federal government for uh, for censorship, including one lawsuit uh, called Kennedy versus Biden that's now in front of the Supreme Court. And it's a companion case of Missouri versus Biden. And we've gotten a lot of documents in the discovery process in that case. And what we found is that uh, and Judge Doty, who is a federal district judge, whose who's, uh, decision has now been upheld, he wrote a 155-page decision, and he ordered the, the White House to stop, uh, to cease all contacts with social media platforms. And But what his decision uh, chronicles is this, uh, this campaign by the Biden administration that began with me. 37 hours after President Biden took the oath of office, swearing to uphold the Constitution, his White House staff was uh, was engaged in email exchanges with the top executives of Twitter, telling them to take down my uh, my you know my uh, postings, telling them to take down my site, and you know two weeks later, they. Uh, Instagram took down, you know, my site with, at that point, I had 800,000 followers. And what the documents we've now recovered from the discovery process and the documents that Elon Musk has uh, really heroically released, which are called the Twitter files, show that the the agent that the White Hat, and White, under White House pressure, the FBI was granted a portal directly into the social media sites so that they could reach into those sites and censor posts uh, that the White House didn't like. And that access, the FBI provided access to that portal, to the CIA, to DHS, to the IRS, and to uh, about a dozen other federal agencies who were all in there, you know, uh, removing posts or altering posts or slow walking them, what they call shadow banning them, posts that they didn't like. And so you had the, the federal government directly involved with censorship. You had all of these federal enforcement agencies that have now been politicized to support, you know, President Biden's reelection efforts and to support his policy goals. And they weren't just, you know, uh, censoring me for public health. And by the way, I do want to say this. I probably have the best fact-checking operation in, in North America today. So uh, we have 350 PhD scientists and MD physicians on our advisory board, and they help make sure that everything I post is, because everything's questioned. So I'm not going to post something that is you know crazy. Everything I post is cited in source to peer-reviewed publications or to government databases. So it's true, as far as you can, you know, as far as you can discern whether you know there's an existential truth. This is as true as it gets. But Facebook had to invent another term, which is called, which they called malinformation, because they were saying, "Oh, the things these people are saying are actually true." And so they got the, the White House and Facebook developed a new term, coined a new term called malinformation, which is not misinformation means it's factually erroneous. Malinformation means it's factually correct, but it's still inconvenient to the government. And um, and that under that basis, they were removing my 
uh, my posts. And and so they they were, but they also removed posts about people criticizing the Ukraine war. Um, people who were uh, in, in one, this is in Judge Doty's decision, in one case, it was uh, somebody who did a satire of President Biden and, and Jill Biden, uh, his wife. So these were just things that were politically, uh, you know, distasteful to the White House. And, and the way they were, they were strong arming the social media sites to go along with this is they were threatening them with revoking their Section 230 immunity. Now, for your you know, listeners who don't know what Section 230 is, Section 230 is the, is the Communications Act uh, uh, regulation that says that uh, social media sites are, cannot be sued for defamation or things that other people post on them. So they're kind of a common carrier, you know, that, that is carrying, they're not responsible. It's a common carrier who's got a lot of people on the bus and they're not responsible for, you know, what those people do and say. And so like, if I publish something in the New York Times, if I, let's say I publish an op-ed uh, in the New York Times that accuses you of some heinous crime, you know, of sex trafficking, right? Um, or something like that, and you want to sue, you can sue me and you can sue the New York Times, and they're responsible. But, and so anytime, like I published for many years op-eds in the New York Times, and every one of them was vetted by an attorney. So everybody knew that if Facebook had to vet every post with an attorney, it would be existential for them. They'd be out of business. Mm. And so they granted them, Congress granted them Section 230 immunity so that they are not responsible. They don't have to vet it. Well, the White House was now saying to them, we are going to yank your 230 immunity. And uh, and that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said that's existential for us. Our business is over. Our, you know, Facebook shuts down the next day because mm. otherwise we're going to get 20 million lawsuits. We get a billion posts a day. You know, 20 of those are going to be act, 20 million of those at least are going to be actual every day. And the company couldn't survive. Yeah. So that was the uh, the hammer at, uh, that the White House was using to make them censor my, um, my post. And it's just part of this landscape now where we're seeing the wholesale uh, politicization and, and weaponization of these federal agencies. And I think my denial of Secret Service protection is, is you know, part of that genre. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it goes on along to continuing continuing to degrade trust, whatever trust is left in these uh, federal agencies. It just plays right into that. And, and uh, it, I mean, it hurts the country. And I, I think it shows also that they're afraid of you. Um, they are balancing, well, what if this guy is killed on the as in, in the lead up here. And we have all this history of both parties affording Secret Service protection to these candidates much farther out than you are right now uh, without the support that you have right now in, in with polling data. And so they're weighing that against how much money because they know you have to spend it. Uh, and for people that are listening, this kind of protection is extremely expensive. Uh, so they they know that. But how horrible is that, that they are weighing those two things, your life, not just your life, like you mentioned, and not just your families, but 
other people at campaign events, anyone in the general vicinity of where you make an appearance. They're risking all that for this political end of you having to spend money there and not on your campaign to get the word out. I mean, it is, history is going, definitely gonna look back, I think anyway, well, it depends on this. The other things you talked about with social media and I'm controlling that information. Oh, it's uh, I, it's I, not a good history look. History's gonna say they were playing hardball. Uh, but, it's, it, but I guess they're just counting on everyone being distracted by 15 second TikTok videos and not looking into the pages of this history, which I think is a remarkable history of both parties providing affording protection for the candidates who are in opposition uh, to them. It's a, anyway, it's, it's, it's horrible. But um, the logical conclusion is that they want you to spend money. Take it a few steps further and they're afraid of you and they're not as concerned about you not being on the campaign trail much longer. If that, anyway, we'll move on from that. It's, yeah. It's, it's awful. Um, and before I get to these campaign policies, and I, I encourage everybody to go to your website and you know, there's videos on there that talk about your priorities. It's so, so well done. Um, but your decision to run as an independent since last time we talked, you made that announcement. Um, what, uh, what went into that and how has it been? How has that been received by, by both sides? I, you know, I, people were, uh, clamoring for me to do this and it just became at one point you know i didn't want to jack i i didn't want to leave the democratic party my five my family has been that you know party you know welcomed us when when my family my all my great-grandparents came over during the potato famine in 1848 you know coming from a country that had uh that had suppressed the rights of uh, Irish couldn't vote, couldn't hold political office. Um, I had an ancestor whose the priest was was hanged for teaching them how to read and write, which was illegal. Um, they weren't allowed to own land. They weren't allowed to practice a profession, and they weren't allowed to uh, under the statutes from, from 1691 onward. They weren't allowed to participate in public life. So when the Irish landed in this country. They took to politics like a starving man takes to water. And uh, everywhere they went, they began, um, you know, dominating the political process. And my my great-grandfather, Patrick Kennedy, was a ward chief of the, probably the number, the senior ward chief of the Democratic Party in Boston. And his contemporary, who was also my great-grandfather, was uh, Honey Fitz, John Honey Fitz Fitzgerald who was a uh, who was the first ghetto Irish Catholic mayor. There'd been an Irish Catholic mayor kind of been chosen by the Brahmins before that um, to, uh, but he was a pet Irishman. My uncle, my grandfather was a, you know, was a ghetto Irish and was part of an insurgency against the Brahmin control of Boston. And then his godson was John Kennedy who took his seat in Congress uh, and and became the first Irish Catholic president of the United States. And, you know, my uncle Teddy ran for president. Um, my uh, my, fam my father uh, died running for president. Uh, all of them within the Democratic Party. So, and then I've had, you know, brothers served, uh, I think, eight terms in Congress. I have a nephew who served six, six terms in Congress. My sister was lieutenant governor of Maryland and the Democratic Party. And, you know, I can go on and on. Many other members of my family, my cousin Patrick Kennedy was uh, in, I think, 10 or 12 terms in Congress. Oh, there's been uh, Kennedy's in 
uh, political offices, Democrats and the leadership of the Democratic Party for uh, since the 1920s, so for, for a century. Wow. And so for me to leave that party was, uh, you know, um, was uh, was I, I'm not going to say heartbreaking because I'm not really a, a really sentimental person, but it was it was a difficult decision and it was one that I resisted a lot. But once I figured out, once it became clear to me, the party made clear to me that they were not going to allow me to win the nomination, no matter what. They changed the rules. Somebody came, uh, did a, a tally of 60 rules that they changed in order to make it virtually impossible for me to win. I mean, the most obvious one was they made a rule that uh, anybody, any candidate who campaigns in the state of New Hampshire, that none of the votes will count for them in New Hampshire. Oh, and I already campaigned in New Hampshire. So what it meant was that, you know, the first primary that uh, I could not possibly win. And they did the same thing in Iowa. And then they were, uh, they did a lot of other things to try to make sure that I couldn't win. And that the problem is the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party's own rules say that they have to be neutral in election. Uh, but everybody knows a lot in 2016, um, they uh, they uh, they put their fingers on the scale. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was then the head of the Democratic Party, put her fingers on the scale to make sure that Bernie, who who should have won, and probably would have beaten Donald Trump, that he could not win. And when her shenanigans got exposed, she was forced to resign. But what happened then, Jack, is that. Um, some of Bernie's followers sued the DNC in federal court, and the federal court judge, after you know hearing this story about how they had fixed the election in violation of their own rules, would say they have to have been be neutral. The federal court said, "Well, it doesn't matter what they did; it doesn't matter how low they sank, no matter what kind of uh, uh, wagman maneuvers they engage in. It's a private club; they can do anything they want. They don't have to obey their own rules. They can throw you out of the club. They can keep you in. They can not, not nominate you by acclamation of a, mm. you know of the, the officers. Anything they do is okay." So my election was the first time where they were like, oh, okay, so now there are no rules. And so, you know, we can come out of the closet. So they merged, although their rules still say, you know, they have to be neutral. They merged, the the DNC merged its fundraising operations and its strategic operations with the Biden campaign. They publicly endorsed President Biden, which they're not supposed to do under their own rules. And, And it was, for me, it was like showing up at a, football game and your opponent is where or and the referees are wearing your opponent's uniform um they uh they they had all of these super delegates and what they call uh, pleos these this class of unelected delegates who the dnc controls who could control the outcome of the democratic convention and what it really became clear is that they would rather have you know my numbers jack showed that i that um again and again that president biden was either tying with president trump or losing to him and that i was consistently beating president trump if i ran within the democratic party Mm. by eight points i would beat desantis by 11 points why is that the reason for that is the democrats will vote for anybody other than trump a yellow dog they would vote for 
um, and or a dead person other than, than President Trump. So they um, so if I ran the Democratic Party, even though a lot of Democrats have distaste for me because they've been reading the defamations and the propagandas and the pejoratives that are, you know, the the the, the daily flow on MSNBC and CNN and the New York Times. They still would prefer me to President Trump. And then I draw much more heavily from independents and also disaffected Republicans. So if I ran as a Democrat, um, I would do much better than President Biden run uh, well against Trump. Um, and, you know, and I would also add that I can actually debate President Trump. And uh, and I don't think that President Biden is going to be able to do that. Yeah, that's I, I haven't seen him have any unscripted um uh encounters with voters or anybody else and i even the scripted ones have not you know gone well so i think but i think for the party because the party is really now responding not to the democratic rank and file but they're responding to their donors and their donors are blackrock and vanguard and state street which own you know 88 percent of the s p 500 there McDonnell Douglas and Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed and all your friends, you know, who, <laughs> you, know you know what they're up to. You know, they want this constant pipeline of new wars. I was going to ask you about that. I have that in my uh, my list of things to discuss. Uh, and I know I was I said I was going to get to those policies, but, but since you brought up family history, I did want to ask about um, your memories of your family's relationship with the special operations community. People people that are watching and listening to this might might know, but some some might not that um, that your uncle authorized the wearing of the green beret for Army Special Forces and was uh, president when the first two SEAL teams were commissioned. Yeah, my my father. Um, and my uncle, I have this tremendous admiration. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, it was beyond admiration. They really, you know, they were people who really put um, physical courage and moral courage. You know, my my uncle famously said that um, that courage is the most important virtue because all the other virtues rely on it. First, first wrote, edition of yeah, first edition right there. Inaugural he won, edition. Profiles he won the Pulitzer Prize for Profiles and Courage, but um, they loved uh, war heroes. You know, my my uncle was the only president in history to um, to win the Purple Heart, um, and his brother died during the war, died a hero, um, and you know volunteered for essentially a suicide mission and was killed on that mission. It was the, actually it was the first. Um, remote control planes. So they they were making an aerial bomb out of an airplane, and they loaded it with bombs. And they were going to the the plan was that my uncle would take it off because they didn't have the they didn't have that you know they they couldn't do that kind of remote control. So he was going to take it off, get it at altitude, and a companion planes next to him would turn on a remote control and begin steering it and they were going to steer it into the submarine pens off of uh scandinavia the, the uh german submarine pens and blow them up and but as soon as he turned on and my uncle was on his way home he had completed his last mission the mandatory you know i think it was 52 missions at that time as a as a pilot and he was on his way home and they asked for volunteers to volunteer for this um, 
and he he was a great hope for my my family. You know, he he was a guy who had who had every gift from God. He was you know an athlete. He was incredibly good looking, incredibly brilliant. And you know, my grandfather really hoped that he would be the first Irish Catholic president, and put all of his hopes in my uncle Joe. And uh, Joe volunteered for this mission and was, uh, as soon as they turned on the remote control, it detonated all the bombs and you know, um, and, and he was vaporized. Um, and my grandfather, 30 years later, if you mention his name, would, would cry. And uh, so um, my uncle and father, my father had, had enlisted in the war. In fact, tomorrow I'm going down to San Diego to launch the, you know, a new uh, a cruiser at the Navy is launching that's named the Robert F. Kennedy. Wow. There's a, there's a battleship that's named after my uncle who died, um, uh, Lieutenant Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., um, and my father during the war, he, he enlisted in 44 when he was when the day that he turned 18, the day that he was legally allowed to enlist. And he and he but he was on that uh, that battleship for the last year and 18 months of the of the uh, World War II. So all of the brothers had been to the war. They all had this tremendous admiration. My father's Justice Department was loaded with his friends from Harvard, who were all former Marines um, and who had fought at Guadalcanal. They had fought at Iwo Jima. And he just admired that. And my uncle, when he came into office, also was looking for ways to avoid nuclear war and, um, and to do more unconventional warfare. And particularly to sort of meld the the Peace Corps with the uh, with the military to have people who could go in and not just kill people, but could dig wells and could um, could make life better for you know the, for peasantry in countries where uh, where they are where they might otherwise be seduced by by communists, and so the, the Green Berets at that time. Um, had been ordered to the the Pentagon did not like the Green Berets and they there was a hostility toward them and they and they ordered them to give up their berets and my uncle uh, issued an executive order saying that they could wear the, the berets and he became very very close and all of us did to um, Major Ruddy who was at that time the you know the top. Uh, commander of the Green Berets, and I went many, many times to Fort Bragg when I was a kid. I went to the Jungle Training Center and El Yunque and in uh, in Puerto Rico where they were training and watched them train there. Uh, they came to our home when we were kids. We had a, a four-story house, and they would fire grappling hooks up onto the top uh, and climb up the uh, the wall of the you know the, up the brick wall of our house and. Uh, and uh, and then rappel down. And you know, I went on the zip lines at Fort Bragg when I was a little boy. And and they, but the Green Berets were very very close. And and my uncle, when my father made sure that when my uncle was killed, that it was uh, that there was a Green Beret was included in the pallbearers who carried his cavalk. And and Major Ruddy uh, left his beret on the 
on uh, on my uncle's grave. You know, my father actually went back at midnight that night with Jackie, and the only thing they found on the grave at that night, you know, after everybody had cleared out, they wanted to be alone with Uncle Jack, and they found Major Ruddy's uh, Green Beret on there. And after that, for many years, I don't know if it's still true, but there was a black stash a little black, black ribbon that was affixed to the Green Beret as a memory to my uncle. And as you pointed out, um, my uncle uh, launched the SEALs. So the first two SEAL teams were, you know, one of the things that were a project that was very dear to his heart because he wanted a special forces group that was attached to the Navy. And, uh, and so he launched the first two SEAL teams and, you know, that was the beginning of the Navy SEALs. Incredible. Did uh, and, and I might have conflated these two stories, and I forget where I where I heard them. But the the grappling hook uh, climbing around the house, and then the zip line story. Did they put? Did they come to the house and put in a zip line in Hannesburg? Uh, they put in a they put in a zip line at our house. <laughs> I, I think I heard yeah. it was fairly treacherous, or it got treacherous over the years. Yeah, it did. There was a lot of emergency room visits. <laughs> it was up there for. 20 years and the way that it worked is you had to have somebody it had a trail rope on it so that and then it went into the trees and the pine trees at the beginning at the end at the end of our, our, our home we had a six acre home and it was up on a hill but it, at the bottom it was ringed by a fence line of of uh, spruce which are you know they're nice pine trees and then there's spruce and spruce there's no way that you can get into a spruce tree without you know getting a lot of uh, Pine needles in your face. In fact, Muhammad Ali went on that zip line and he got uh, during one of the pet shows and he ended up, they had a little special Olympics kid who is a huge admirer of his. And yeah, he wasn't little, he was a big kid. He had Down syndrome and they asked him to catch the rope and he saw Muhammad Ali coming to him and he just was disarmed by by admiration and just watched him go by into the trees and he got a face full of nettles and um which he didn't like he was very uh protective of his face <laughs> and um and then george bush went on it when he was vice president you know and he had as you probably remember i think when he was 80 years old he jumped out of an airplane he had been you know he had and uh, I don't know whether he was a pilot or a paratrooper during the World War II, but he was also a war hero. Yeah, pilot. Um, but he went on it. You know, it was it was scary. There was a, they, <laughs> the Green Berets built an airplane up in the tree. They, they built a tree house, but it was in the shape of an airplane. Nice. And so you uh, you got the experience of jumping out of a plane onto the zip line. And uh, and as I said, when we had the my mother had a pet show there every year and people with there was a line to ride the zip line and there was always uh ambulance at the bottom of it and you know back then people didn't sue each other so they just drove them to georgetown emergency room but uh and there were a lot of emergency room runs from that nobody <laughs> would do that today nobody would do it today <laughs> that's right liability <laughs> uh, oh my gosh they also they also built a uh, an obstacle course in our in one of the pastures and it was a really uh, um you know it was a it was a green beret a uh, great obstacle course yeah. and it had you know climbing walls on it and it had rope uh, lines and, and it had um 
uh, and it had water hazards and all of this other stuff. So amazing. Uh, amazing. Yeah, they were a big part of our lives growing up. That's incredible. There's. I want to ask you about the um, American University speech uh, piece um, and as it pertains to your campaign. But before I do, since we're on special operations, there's another speech that uh, that your uncle gave at West Point where he talks about wars of the future and insurgencies, um, assassins. And it's a, it's a remarkable speech. I post a portion of it every uh, uh, January 1st when the first two SEAL teams were commissioned. So I do post that every year on my on my Instagram and, uh, and on Twitter. But um, since we're on the topic, uh, history, it's November of 1963, such a pivotal point in our nation's history. We discussed it on your podcast a little bit. So much changed on uh, November 22nd. And I think that really was an awakening. It's where the trust in government um, really began to deteriorate. And the actions of the government since that day uh, in relation to that event have done nothing to help rebuild that trust. In fact, it's done the absolute opposite of that uh, to include up to this very day and uh, uh, the last two administrations who have essentially violated federal law by not releasing the documents related to those investigations. Um, and both, both parties, two different presidents, and if they were not complicit in the events of November 1963, they're going way out of their way to make it look like they are. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, well, that, yeah, and that's been the, the issue. And you know, this is a, this is a longer discussion, and, and I'm happy to have it. But you know, one of the issues that came out of my uncle's death, and there were many. I think it it was a fork in the road for our country, but it, one of the forks was, as you just pointed out, the credibility of the government. When my uncle was president, 80% of the the people in our country said that they trusted the government and that they believed the government wouldn't lie. Oh, that's a huge change. And and that really started changing, Jack, in in May of 1960, right before my uncle's election. I, I think at that point, 100% of Americans would say that government never lies. It's our government. We own it. It's not going to lie to us. Um, and and that was when Gary Powers' U2 was shut down. The U2 program was a CIA program. Nobody knew. Americans didn't even know that U2 existed. And they, you know, it was it was flying at I think over a hundred thousand feet. It was flying very, very high, maybe 75, 100,000 feet, and taking pictures. And they, they, it was invisible to the naked eye, and they thought it was impossible to shoot down. But the, because there was a mole in Langley, they had figured out, the Russians had figured out a way to shoot it down, and they shot one down. Pilots were under order to use a, um, a, a coin that had a needle in it, and, and uh, a, a, that was a suicide injection. I think it was filled with... Uh, arsenic or uh, you know something cyanide that was super lethal mm -hmm. well, what do you Cy think cyanide or something yes i think it's cyanide that's right oh and and so dulles and eisenhower at that point was planning a summit with khrushchev to talk about perestroika talk about you know um about peace between the two nations 
and he was very excited about it. He was, you know, he wanted to end the war, the Cold War. And and then we then this this jet gets shot down. And Alan Dulles, who was running that program, that program was run out of the Atasui Air Force Base in in Japan, and it was a top secret. It was a CIA base. And um, Alan Dulles told him they they can never prove that we have this uh, this airplane. And the pilot was under orders. Even if he survived, he would have killed himself. So they'll never be able to prove it. Well, the Russians had Gary Powers. He did not use the sign. He chose not to. And so they let us, they let Eisenhower go on TV and lie about it and say, we never did it, told the world that, told the American people, Russia's lying. And then the next day they produced Gary Fred's powers. And that was the first time Americans said, holy cow, our government is lying to us. And then, you know, with 1963, it just made sense. I, you know, when my uncle was killed, I was, well, you know, my uncle was killed, right? And then my father, the first three calls he makes are saying, are the two of them to the CIA, one to John McCone, who's the director of the CIA. When I came home that day from school, my mother picked us up early, brought us home from school. The flags were already all at half staff. And my um and my father was walking in the yard with with John McCone. And he in, in that conversation. We now know, he said to John McCone, did your people do this? John McCone, the CIA was only half a mile from my house, and we used to ride through it on horseback every morning. My father would take us at six o'clock uh, riding every day uh, before breakfast and before school. And we and then John McCone, when my father and uncle fired Alan Dulles after Bay of Pigs, they brought in this guy who was a straight arrow. He was a you know pious Catholic, he, and he was, and they thought and he was a Republican. They thought that he would straighten out the CIA, which of course you know nobody even he was he was non mentis. He didn't even know what they were doing, and nobody told him so. He didn't know what was happening. And my father then called Harry Ruiz, who was a, a, one of the Cuban refugees. And that's who my father suspected would be, the, you know, wanted to kill my uncle very badly. And he said to him the same thing. He said, did your guys do this? And then he called a death sergeant. But um, the, uh, my, my um, I mean, that was kind of the, the first instinct that he had and then i was uh three days later i was in the white house in the east room i'm now uh, you know a 10 year old kid and um and president johnson comes on with you know standing next to my uncle's casket with just the family members and president johnson comes in and he says that Lee Harvey Oswald was just killed by a man named Jack Ruby. He told this to my father and Jackie and my mother, who are all standing right next to me. I turned to my mother and I said, why would he kill, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald? Did he love our family? Right? Because it made no sense to me as a 10-year-old kid. And it made no sense to anybody in our country. And of course, he didn't love our family. He was a mobster who ran prostitutes for the Carlos Marcello mob, which was, you know, one of the, the three mobs, along with Santos Traficante and Sam Giancana, who had had their casinos in Havana taken away from 
from Castro, and we're working with the CIA on the assassination program. But this guy was, um, you know, was not a friend of our families, and and uh, and it made no sense to the American public or anybody else. Why would he walk into a police station in broad daylight and risk his life to to kill this guy? And then he's, you know, he had all these these terrible associations with men that my father had prosecuted. Um, that that day, my father was the jury was was out on Carlos Marcella's case, who was his boss, Jack Ruby's boss. So, um, so no, it made no sense to everybody. And whether you believed it or not, or said you believed it or not, there was a large part of the American public who said something is wrong, and the government's not telling us the truth. And then you know. Every year they're supposed to release these documents, and every year they don't. And and I don't I don't know what they told Biden because Trump. What did they tell Donald Trump? Donald Trump was no friend of the CIA's. Yeah. Why does Why does he promises again and again in his campaign? I'm going to obey the law. The, assass- the JFK Assassination Documents Act required that they all be released. I think by 2016. Yeah. So, so he says, yeah, I'm going to release them all. He goes in there saying that, and then he gets in there and he pivots and never explains why he, you know, he said things privately. I've heard, you know, of course you don't know, Um, but you know, he said kind of suggestive things to people that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't want to release anyways. I've heard people say that. I don't know whether he said that. I don't know what his explanation is. If I ever, if I ever am in a room with him again, and I have been in rooms with him many times before, I sued him twice, and you know he was very friendly to me when I, during that period I was suing him to keep him from building golf courses in the New York City watershed, and I won. But he was very friendly, and then he asked me to run a vaccine safety commission for him, and I spent the day with him and his kids and Steve Bannon and all of his you know cronies up in Trump Tower, but. That was before this. If I ever get alone with him in a room again, I'm going to say, you know, why did you change your mind? Because it's not like him. You know, he doesn't care about breaking things. He doesn't care about embarrassing the agency. Yeah. uh, That's why it's so odd. Let let me tell you one, uh, just one other thing, which which is the other part of, you know, the the turning point. Mm -hmm. President, as you know, President Eisenhower, three days before my uncle took the oath of office. And I was there at that time. You know, I was uh, sitting on that bleachers in the freezing cold that day, the glistening blue sky and, and snow all over the ground. Three days early on my birthday, January 17th, 1961, President Eisenhower gives his farewell address, which you know and I know now is, is arguably and probably the most important speech in American history where he warns America against the emergence of military industrial complex that will turn our nation into an imperium abroad and to a national security state, a surveillance state, a garrison state at home, and will destroy American democracy, will gut the American middle class. And he goes through all of these horror stories of what's going to happen to us if we allow this to continue. I want to wish veteran Wally King a very happy 100th birthday. 
and want to thank everyone from that greatest generation, the World War II generation, who fought and sacrificed so much for the freedoms that we enjoy today. At Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. That's why they're proud to have served the military community for over 90 years. Their employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are veterans themselves. They serve more than 2 million veterans, so they understand the needs of veterans. They provide resources like Best Careers After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer award-winning 24-7 stateside member service. Use the hashtag gratitude mission to thank a veteran and honor their service. Your service inspires ours. Learn more at navyfederal.org slash veterans. Insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. Hey everybody, I'm Andy Stumpf, host of the Ironclad Original Change Agents. For over a decade, Ironclad has worked with brands and individuals to create world-class films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. In fact, I've been working with Ironclad for the past few years. I was introduced to them on a project through the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with them uh, on a variety of projects, even up here in Montana, long before they proposed the idea of change agents to me. They're the best in their field. And I say that because there are plenty of people out there looking for the best, looking for the cream of the crop, looking for the top of the triangle. And if you're looking for that, you need to look no further than Ironclad. If you ever need media by way of film, a series, podcasts, or ad campaigns, they have you covered. You can reach out today and follow them anywhere at This Is Ironclad, the ampersand, and then This Is Ironclad, or visit them online, thisisironclad.com. Again, www.thisisironclad.com. My uncle comes into office determined not to um, allow that to happen. He had his own reasons. You know, he, Eisenhower said it will not be a warrior who starts the next world war. It will not be a soldier. It will be somebody who has never been a soldier. Uh, and so my uncle comes in, you know, who doesn't trust the brass anyway, because he's got the you know, the irreverence toward the brass and all the kind of lower officers who were actually frontline people, you know, it, it, he called them the salad brass, the guys oh, with yeah. all the, you know, all the, salad, the decorations yeah. on them. Yeah. So uh, he says, he told his aide, he told his best friend, Ben Bradley, who was that, two, he, two, two best friends, Ben Bradley and Len Billington, he told Ben Bradley, who was then the editor of the Washington Post, he said, Brent Bradley asked him, what do you want as your epithet on your gravestone? And my uncle said to him, he kept the peace without skipping a beat. He said, the primary job of the president of the United States is keep the country out of war. He said, I don't want children in Africa when they hear the United States of America to think of a man with a gun. I want them to think of a Peace Corps volunteer. I want them to think of the Kennedy Milk Program that provides nutrition and mal you know, millions of malnourished kids. I want them to think of USAID and, and Alliance for Progress would put America on the side of the poor. And that, they don't do that anymore, by the way. They're now CIA fronts. But back then, you know, they, the idea was to grow a middle class and to end run the oligarchs and the juntas and, and actually, 
you know, foster democracy abroad, which we, we said we were doing. And so then, uh, and then the Bay of Pigs happens. He was lied to, to his face by Alan Dulles, Charles Cabell, the military director of the CIA, and, and Richard Bissell, and by some of the, his, um, his joint chiefs. They lied to him about about what was you know what was going to happen because he he was very skeptical. He didn't want to allow those men to go in there. He refused to give them military aid to go in there, and he did, thought the whole idea was bad. And said, you know, Castro's got two hundred thousand troops. You're sending twenty two hundred men. What's that? And the CIA said, don't worry, it's not wired. They're gonna, there's going to be an uprising as soon as they land on the beach. We have the whole thing you know set. There, it's all planned. Everybody knows. Castro was going to be overthrown. And my my uncle doubted it, but he said, four months into office, they said, you keep these men here, they're all armed, they're trained, they're dangerous, and it will be a disaster to keep them in the country. So we let them go. They're all dying on the beach, and now they come and say, you got to send air cover. And he says, I'm not going to do it. I told you I wasn't going to do it. And it was the lowest moment of his presidency. And he publicly took the blame for it, but privately, he told his aide famously, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. The next thousand days of his presidency are pitch battle with his military industrial complex to keep the country out of war. He kept us out of Laos. Um, they called him a traitor at the Pentagon. He kept us out of Cuba in 61 and 62. They called him a traitor for that. Um, he kept us out of Berlin in 62 during the Checkpoint Charlie crisis. And then uh, Vietnam, they, you know, his closest aides, the guys he really liked, like Max Taylor, General Maxwell Taylor, uh, um, Dean Acheson, people he trusted, Bob McNamara, um, Avril Harriman, all told him, you got to send 250,000 troops to Vietnam or the government is going to collapse. He said, it's our government. He also, in the first days of his presidency, he got a visit from General Douglas MacArthur. And he said to MacArthur, what do you think about sending troops to Vietnam and, and Laos? MacArthur knew more about fighting Asians than any American in history. And he said any president who sends ground troops to Asia should have their head examined. And my uncle would often repeat that to these, you know, to the brass when they came to him. They said, he'd say, don't go convince Doug MacArthur and then come back to me. Because MacArthur, everybody knew MacArthur knew more about what would happen to the troops if you sent them to Asia? And of course, he was right. Wow. So my uncle finally sent 16,000 advisors. And he said, it's their government. No, uh, they have to defend it. It's their fight. They have to fight it. We can give them assistance like the French did for us during the revolution, but we can't fight the war for them. So he... So he, he ends up sending 16,000 troops, which is fewer federal troops that he sent to Oxford, Mississippi in 62 to get one black man, you know, James Meredith, into Ole Miss. Wow. So it wasn't a lot of people. And they, under the rules of engagement that he set down, they weren't allowed to participate in combat. They were Green Berets, so of course they did it, right? <laughs> so October 22nd, he finds out that Green Beret gets killed, got killed. And he went to Walt Ross and he said, Give me the casualty list. I want to see everybody who's died. They came back and he said, 75 um, have died. 
And he said, that's too many. I'm bringing them all home. That afternoon, he signs National Security Order 263, ordering all military personnel out of Vietnam by December 65, with the first thousand coming home December 63. So five weeks later, 30 days after he signs that order, he's murdered. And a week later, President Johnson remands the order. And, you know, President Johnson sends 250,000 troops over. And Nixon, his successor, then sends, you know, 560,000, uh, we kill a million of them at least. Uh, 56,000 of our kids never come home, including my cousin, George Skakel, who died in the Tet Offensive. And, um, and these traumas, and then my father runs against the war in 68. You know, and as soon as he gets, uh, you know, he, he wins the California primary in that night, he's, he, he's killed. Two months earlier, Martin Luther King, who was, by then was a peace activist, that was his big issue then, he's murdered. So these traumas, my uncle's assassination, my father's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, the Vietnam War itself, 9-11, and uh, COVID, those Trumps, each one of them pushed us a little farther down that road, which Eisenhower warned us against, which is, you know, where we are today, which is a, a military imperium addicted to endless wars abroad and a garrison state, a surveillance state at home that has, you know, it has, we still have the, the sort of some of the indicia of democracy, but it's a Hollywood stage. There's no American who actually thinks that their voices are audible in Washington, D.C., you know, and we all know it's rigged and it's just a kabuki theater of democracy. So we continue to tell ourselves that we have democracy in this country, but, you know, it's all being run by, you know, you know who it was, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and all of their, you know, their minions like Raytheon and General Dynamics and, and uh, Lockheed Martin and and Boeing and all those guys. To say nothing of the of media uh, corporations that yeah, they, they own and those tentacles and the, the connections there. But I think but why is General Dynamics advertising on Good Morning America? <laughs> I mean, do you think that audience is buying killer drums? For, you know, <laughs> they, uh, you know, why are these military contractors? And why do you see their advertisements on you know popular TV? Because they're controlling content. No, it's not. They're not actually selling their stuff. They're controlling content. Uh, pharmaceutical industries. There's so many connections yeah. there and uh, similarities between uh, military lobbyists and corporations and the pharmaceutical industry, as you've spoken uh, about many times. Yeah, you know, I, I, and I, I don't need to interrupt you, but if you read Eisenhower's speech, which everybody should do, and it's yeah, the a whole very thing. short speech. In, in its entirety. Most people just know the military-industrial complex part, yeah. but the whole thing, people need to watch yeah, it or he, read it. He lays out, the, the, he lays out the, the federal scientific technocracy, which is going to obliterate science and is going to, you know, turn us into a, into a, you know, a totalitarian, you know, utopia. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people know this, and you know more about it than anyone, but Following the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's my understanding that I wouldn't say a friendship, but a relationship developed between your uncle and and uh, and people in on the other side there in in, in Moscow and the 
Kremlin, Soviet Union at the time. Um, and some of the CIA operations, maybe most of them, focused on Cuba out of, I think, Miami, um, other places in Florida, South Florida, uh, were essentially shut down. And I don't think a lot of people know that part of the history. Yeah, so what happened is um, during uh, in 62, it was interesting because the CIA knew almost nothing about um, about the Kremlin. And that's because there was a mole in Langley. And every time they got a, that they turned a Kremlin official, he was immediately murdered or disappeared. And they sent a lot of people, they sent literally, you know, James Jesus Angleton sent thousands of spies into, you know, they bring people over here, they train them, and then they send them back and parachute them in or whatever. They were all immediately met and murdered. And uh, and so the CIA had no eyes in the Kremlin and didn't know what was happening there. They didn't know anything about Khrushchev, and it was just a monolith to them. And they the way they talked about it to Jack is it was just, it was monolithic. They all wanted one thing, world expansion, world conquest, and he just didn't buy it. Mm. And he knew that all politics is local and everybody is responding to all of these different fissures and, you know, and uh, and, uh, and complexities and competitions. And politics is the same everywhere. And he, he was curious about Khrushchev. And during the Checkpoint Charlie crisis, he... Um, you know, Lucius Clay, who was a, they, at this point, the Soviets were, were erecting a wall because everybody from East Germany, which was now under Russian control, were running to get into West Germany and it was being depopulated. So they were just hemorrhaging people because nobody wanted to be under communist rule. So Khrushchev erected a wall and that was the Berlin Wall to keep these people from flowing out. And Lucius Clay, who was, you know, one of the joint the joint chiefs, a very interesting World War II hero. But they were always trying those, the, the brass was always trying to arrange a provocation to uh, for a nuclear confrontation. They they thought nuclear war was inevitable and that it was desirable that it be as soon as possible because the Russians were catching us and we had the edge on the technology. And they, they kept saying to Jack, if we do it now. We can kill 130 million of them and they'll only get 30 million of us. And my uncle's like, that's wow. That's not none of that is good. <laughs> wow. So so Lucius Clay was trying to arrange one of those provocations. So he put a bulldozer plows on the front of uh, of Sherman tanks, and then they started plowing down the wall. And the Russian uh, tank. I don't know what it would be, a brigade or a you know division. But anyway, they confronted them at Checkpoint Charlie, which was the crossing. And it was a standoff that was one of the most dangerous standoffs of the Cold War, wow. um, where there was really no way out. And at that point, my uncle began communicating with Castro and made a deal with him. I mean, with Khrushchev. And Khrushchev said, sent him um, uh, a, a note that said, my back is to the wall. I have no place to retreat. And at that point, my uncle had met Khrushchev at Vienna in his, the very beginning of his presidency. And he, my uncle came with very grandiose ideas 
about ending the Cold War and you know figuring out how do we compete economically with each other and and stop the military competition, which is destroying the world. And Khrushchev met him with all this bombast and this pugnacious lecturing about U.S. imperialism. And my uncle went home from that meeting just in despair. And but now Khrushchev comes back and um, and says he says to him that something vulnerable. He acknowledges to him that he also he's in the same position Jack is, which is they're both anti-war. Khrushchev had been at Stalingrad. Uh, Stalin was trying to purge him, and he literally hid at Stalingrad, which was the worst place in the world to hide. It was the worst battle of the of World War II, the, the most horrific. You know, people eating each other and 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 building the building, home to home combat. You know, in in seventy five below temperatures with a lot of people freezing to death. A lot of them, sorry, it was just horrific. And it's where they stopped the Nazis. Yeah. Khrushchev had been the leader there. He had seen the worst horrors of the war, and he did not want another war, no matter what. So, but he was surrounded by an intelligence apparatus and and uh, you know military brass who all wanted to go to war to show their muscles. And then the and they, you know they knew they had won World War II, right? One out of every seven Russians died. They they you know they. I think they killed a hundred divisions, Nazi divisions uh, that we could have never fought, you know, but they absorbed them and destroyed them. But they destroyed their entire nation. I, you know, I think a third of the nation was leveled. So, and one out of every seven Russians died and they felt like, you know, we, we can do it again if you need us to work. You know, the Russians are tough. And you know the stories from Russia during the war dropping, you know, when they ran out of parachutes, they just flew the planes low and dropped them into the snow, you know, with no parachutes. And if you live, you live. So they were very, they were tough guys. And that, that was their attitude. So that, um, so my uncle, but my uncle, he sent this kind of vulnerable plea to my uncle. I got no place to go. You've got to help me out of this. And my uncle sent him a message. If you withdraw your tanks within 24 hours, we'll withdraw ours. Mm. And he did it. And at that point, they knew they could trust each other. Interesting. And then during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, um, they... Um, my uncle made a deal with him, which was a secret deal. And my father went over and, and brokered the deal with Ambassador Dobrynin in the middle of the night, where all of my uncle's staff, there was 13 people on the XCOM committee who, were, who met for 13 days at the, uh, at the White House. My father slept at the White House every night. We were going to be evacuated. To, the, to this underground city down in, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains. And they came to our house again, me and my brother Joe, and my, we, I was very anxious to go see the place because I, you know, it was this incredible underground cavern where, you know, we would weather the apocalypse where the whole U.S. government and their families could fit. So I was anxious to see it. My father called us and said, you can't go because if you don't show up at Our Lady of Victory School, the entire nation that's going to find out about it and they're going to panic you need to be good soldiers and go to the school and um but he was there for 13 days 
11 of the people on the XCOM committee uh, wanted to invade Cuba and to take out for 64 missile emplacements. My uncle said to them, um, said to the CIA, he said, who's, first of all, are they armed? Do they have nuclear warheads? And the CIA wasn't sure. Mm. And he said, who are the gun crews? Are they Cubans or are they Russians? They said, they're probably Russians. How many Russians are there? Over 100 at each site. If we kill those Russians, isn't that going to make Khrushchev go into Berlin? to West Berlin, and they were like, we don't think he has the guts to do it. And my uncle was like, that is not a good bet. Mm. So he decided to do something else, which was to embargo, to surround Cuba, to not let any anything in and out. And my father goes in the middle of the night and makes a deal with Ambassador de Brennan. And, and, and by then they knew what why the Russians had put them in Cuba. They put them in Cuba because we put Jupiter missile systems in Turkey and Italy. And they said, you know, why can you have nukes on our border, you know, 35 minutes from Moscow, and we can't put them on your border, you know, 35 minutes from, from Washington. It's not fair. It's, it's destabilizing. And so um, my uncle made it, my father made a secret deal, and he told uh, Dobrenin, if Khrushchev removes them from Cuba within six months, we'll remove them. But if you ever talk about it, the deal's off. If anybody finds out about it, the deal's off. It's just between us. They didn't want to look like they capitulated. Right. And, uh, Khrushchev went along with it. So at that point, they start, they know they can trust Khrushchev. And Khrushchev starts writing them letters. And the first letter is smuggled in. Because he doesn't want to send it through the diplomatic corps mm -hmm. and through his, you know, Kremlin, mm -hmm. uh, you know, handlers. He wants to talk directly to my uncle Jack. They install hotlines, one in the White House, one in the House at the Cape. So there was a, a, a phone when we were growing up that was a red phone. And we knew that if we touched it, if we picked that up, Khrushchev would answer it. Wow. And, um, and they... The, my uncle started exchanging these letters, ultimately 26 letters, these very personal, personal letters that are extraordinary to read, um, where Khrushchev, you know, says we're all on an ark like Noah's Ark. And, um, you know, uh, and we're all part of a community and we, you know, we can't hurt each other without damaging the ark. Yeah. And, you know, they talk about, my uncle talks about us, you know, his, his nephews and, and grandchildren are all playing in the yard there and saying, you know, what right do we have as leaders to, to destroy the lives of these children who will never have a chance to write a poem or participate in politics yeah. or, you know, um, or, you know or, or fulfill any of their own destinies, and they're not at fault. You know, it's a failure of us of leadership if we let war happen. Beautiful, beautiful letters. The first one is smuggled, folded in the New York Times um, to Pierre Salinger by a guy called George Bolshoi, who was a GRU, you know, and you know what the GRU is, the, yeah. um, okay, the military intelligence as opposed to the KGB. He was a GRU spy 
my father had met him and mother had met him at a reception at the Soviet embassy and they had fallen in love with him. He was a real, he was like the Russian James Bond. He was very charming. He was built like a fire plug, but he came to our house all the time in the State Department. We loved him there because this is when all the James Bond movies were coming out. And, you know, to have a real Soviet spy in your house was just cool. So, um, and then he would do push-up contests, very strong Cossack guy, you know, he was doing push-up contests with my dad. He'd do rope climbing contests. Uh, he could do the Cossack dancing, you know, on his haunches. And uh, it was, and so we all loved him. But he was the vector for smuggling all these letters back and forth from each other. Let me tell you about First Form. They have amazing products. My personal favorites are the protein sticks and the micro factor daily nutrient packs. And why do I like them so much? Because first form makes it super easy to get quality protein and nutrients on the go. And I always seem to be on the go while their products are top notch quality. What I like the most about them are their values. First form is so much more than a supplement company. They are deeply committed to both American jobs and your personal well-being. At First Form, they value people. In fact, the only thing they've automated is a tape machine, a symbol of their dedication to providing jobs and making lives better. They care about employing people, nurturing their growth, and genuinely improving lives. Their mission is simple. First Form is there to help you reach your fitness and wellness goals. They believe in a partnership where, if you meet them halfway, they'll help you make progress. Go to firstform.com slash jackcar to receive free shipping on any orders over $75. That's one, the number one, S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash jackcar. Once again, that's one, the number one, S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash jackcar and receive free shipping on any orders over $75. You know, it ended up with Khrushchev and my uncle directly and running their their entire diplomatic corps, their entire military apparatus, their intelligence apparatus, and negotiating the first uh, uh, treaty of the nuclear age, which was the you know the Tasman Treaty of 1963. And he gave this, and you know everybody was against it. Congress was, I think, ninety to one against, ninety to ten against it, and the American public were against it, and. He did a whistle stop tour around the country um, and he went to the newspapers and he put every energy into that. And he gave this famous speech that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast at American University, where he does something that no American president ever had done, which is he, he said, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the Russians and look at the world from their perspective. And then he talked about the sacrifice and he, he said, we all were, are told, you know, from television shows and movies that we were in, we won World War II, we didn't, the Russians won it. And we have to understand the sacrifice they made. Yeah. And it, it, he said to them, imagine if the entire, if every city was leveled from the East Coast to Chicago and all the forests and fields burned. Imagine that. That's what that's what the Russians endured to beat Hitler. Yeah, 
And he said, um, they have a right to have anxiety about their national security. And we have to recognize that right. It's a reasonable right. They're not irrational creatures that they're being portrayed. And that speech, this extraordinary speech, completely changed the conversation. And, you know, in the end, uh, he ended up passing, he ended up uh, uh, ratifying this treaty, getting Congress to ratify this treaty, which was, which ended atmospheric uh, testing of nuclear weapons. Yeah, um, there are a lot of parallels um, to uh, to that or lessons from Cuban Missile Crisis, removing missiles from Turkey, removing them from Cuba, uh, to what's going on between Russia, Ukraine, and us by proxy. Uh, and I've heard you speak on it uh, with so much more nuance and understanding of the history than I have heard from anyone in the administration, any senior military officer, anyone who has commented on it, uh, uh, elected official side of the house. Um, but there's so many lessons from that time period that would help us as a, as a, as a country yeah. understand. Um, but, uh, but, but, but before, but before I get to that, I was hoping to get back to that because it has so much to do with what's happening right now. Um, what people also don't know is that, uh, that your father was almost director of the, of the CIA. He was, was talked about. He, I, I wouldn't say he was almost talked director. about. My talked uncle about. asked him to be director. That's pretty good. That's pretty close. That's pretty close. It was a bad idea because it was when right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, my uncle fires um, Dulles, mm -hmm. who was you know the founding director. He fires uh, um, Richard Bissell and he fires Charles Cabell, who's the military director. And incidentally, Charles Cabell's brother is the uh was the mayor of dallas and we now know he was also a cia agent wow. and he's the one that arranged the uh the, the um uh the route for my uncle's limousine to take um on the day that he died with that dog leg that would you know make the limousine slow down the convertible slow down to almost to a stop at in dealey plaza so um, uh, uh, anyway, he fires the top three guys at the CIA, and um, he wanted to get. A, he understood it was out of control, and that it was becoming a government within the government, um, and that he needed to get a handle on it. And it, the only one he really trusted to do that was his brother. Uh, we asked Addy to run it. My my dad said, and my grandfather said you can't do that because it will be like you know if it, it will be like molotov and stalin who were joined at the hip and it became an instrument this secret police people were worried about secret police agencies then they thought they were inconsistent with democracy when the cia was you know after world war ii the cia the oss was disbanded and it, and republicans democrats said we can't we cannot have a secret police agency in a democracy. They, yeah. you know, that they have it. Um, you know, they, they have the Stasi in Germany. They have the um, KGB in Russia. They have the Gestapo in uh, in Germany. They have Savak in Iran. And they these are the things that these are uh, instruments of, of public control that are very very dangerous and that you know, are inconsistent and antithetical to democracies. You cannot have a secret police agency and a democracy. You have to choose. 
So people were very mistrustful of it. And uh, but then, you know, and Truman very reluctantly started it back up in 1947. Um, but it was supposed to just do espionage at that point. It wasn't supposed, there was no plans division, which is, as you know, it's the kind of the paramilitary functions of the, of the agency. And um, and that, but, and, and uh, the director, Dulles, created that by, through a, a legislative maneuver, like a late night legislative maneuver, by changing some wording in the charter to allow them to do um, operations. And uh, and then it grew immediately into the, you know, and right after my uncle died, I think a week later, Truman published a uh, an op-ed in the New York Times saying uh, the agency should never have had those powers. I didn't intend it to have those powers, and, and those powers have to be revoked. And my father, right before he died, a week before he died, when he was asked by Pete Hamill, a reporter, what are you going to do about the CIA? He said, I'm going to divide the plans division, the operation division from the espionage division to separate those two, because the problem is when they're working in cahoots with each other, the espionage is important because that's information gathering and information analysis. You're giving the president vital information he needs to, to know to make uh, informed policy decisions. But when it becomes attached to the uh, to the operations division, then they begin to justify each other and they begin justifying each other's existence and then covering for each other when there's a mistake and there's no accountability. You know, nobody measures blowback. And as you know, the cost of blowback, you know, in, in every way, it's never measured. You know, yeah. you might you may go in and kill a bad guy in Afghanistan, but what if he has twelve brothers? Exactly. Right? You don't you don't know, you know, yeah. you don't know what the long term trajectory of that of that of that uh, yeah. operation is. And you know, on a large scale, we overthrew the government of some of Iran, the first all well, the first democracy in Iran's four thousand year history. In 1953, we overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh, who was the most popular guy in the developing world. He was this incredible intellectual, this kind-hearted guy who was giving women's rights, bringing farm, you know, take, uh, farm reform, agricultural reform, voting reform, education, uh, all these wonderful things to Iran. But, but one of the things he wanted to do was to nationalize BP and Texaco. Fascinating and, uh, history. Churchill tried to overthrow him, and and he threw Churchill out. He threw the British out, and all of his aides told him, "You got to throw um, America out too, because they're going to do it." And he said, "No, America's a democracy. They're just like us. They were used to be a colonial ruled, and they understand us. And they support us. They'll never turn on us." And boy, was he wrong. And Dulles and Kermit Roosevelt, Roosevelt through him. <laughs> yep, Kermit Roosevelt. I think he got a uh, a cable telling him to stand down that he uh, conveniently didn't read uh, in time. <laughs> I think there it's a fascinating history right there. And I know we're creeping up on the on the time we have left there. I got through one page of my nine, but uh, <laughs> we have mentioned Alan Dulles a few times in here. So um, this uh, this is my copy the the Warren Commission report right here, uh, which should be called the Dulles commission report. Yeah, exactly. And this is the New York Times edition right here. 
And it's fascinating because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 1979 after the uh, Committee on, on Assassinations that looked into um, uh, not just your uncle's assassination, but others as well. Uh, a memo, I think, went out from the CIA to the New York Times and other publications uh, that talked about the word conspiracy. And uh, which, if you look it up, it means a, a, a secret uh, a group. Group and secret are in that definition. So more than one person um, and, uh, and, and secret. Uh, and they said to label people that go against the narrative, which that Committee on Assassinations found that there was the probability of a conspiracy. Uh, and it, it, it's right there after they saw much a lot more documents than, than the Warren Commission did. Um, and so I find it interesting that the New York Times edition right here, and then you have this memo from the CIA going to the New York Times uh, that essentially says anyone who doesn't believe what's in this uh, needs to be labeled a conspiracy theorist. And they didn't come up with that term, but they certainly popularized it uh, at the time. And it's become, you know, popular is probably not the right word, but uh, it's been it's been part of the lexicon ever since. Um, yeah. So the uh, just your thoughts before we get out of here on the uh, on the the Dulles Commission. Um, uh, or how well, yeah, I mean, well, you know, the, the 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 charter of the CIA and there was an act called the Smith Bond Act that makes it illegal for the CIA to propagandize Americans. So, and then we found out, you know, when the House Select Assassinations Committee, which was seventy nine, so the Warren Commission was in sixty four. Warren Commission was run by Alan Dulles, and we now know that he was meeting every day with who with Hoover, or and he was meeting with a guy called George Johannides, who had been uh, Lee Harvey Oswald handler in the CIA. So the, the official liaison to the Warren Commission from the CIA was a guy who nobody knew was a handler of Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA asset. Lee Harvey, almost, Lee Harvey Oswald had been a, a Marine. He was a radar operator at the Atasui Air Force Base, which is doing the U-2 flights for the CIA. And um, the, the supposition that he then defected to the Soviet Union in a very, very high profile defection. The supposition is that he was ordered to do that by James Jesus Angleton, who was the counter uh, insurgent or, you know, uh, yeah, counter uh, insurgency, um, uh, counter espionage director at Langley, and the, the the supposition is that he that Angleton was trying to identify who the mole was at Langley, and they thought of a high level, and they knew that the U two flight had been given up by a mole. so they knew they could the Soviets had could have never shot it down if it wasn't for a mole. So they wanted to to expose them all. So they arranged. This is like, again the the you know informed speculation that that is why um, Lee Harvey Oswald defected the Soviet Union because they thought they had a trigger system on the file or on Harvey's uh, on Oswald's file at Langley, and that they thought that people in Moscow would tell them all, "Go look and see who this guy is. See if we can trust him. See what the CIA does about him." And that they had a triggered system that would tell them if anybody looked at that file, and that individual would be the mole. And of course, after two years, you know, he, he, Oswald marries the daughter of the uh, of a KGB colonel, 
and and works in a chart factory there. And after two years, he walks into the embassy in Moscow and says, I've changed my mind. I want to go back to the United States. And they give him $600 for an airplane ticket, give him his passport back, which he had, you know, revoked. And they fly him to Dallas, where he's met by another guy, a CIA asset called George DeMarshall, who then arranges uh, for his family and, and arranges for him to get a, a job at the book depository from, you know, uh, where, where later on um, he is uh, uh, linked to the Kennedy assassination. So um, no, nobody knew that on the Warren Commission at that time. A lot of this information started coming out 15 years later when the House Select Assassination Committee convenes and they start looking into it. And the House Select Assassination Committee concludes, and you can read this in the, in the, in the congressional record, that my uncle was killed by a conspiracy. Almost everybody on, that, on the staff believed it was the CIA who had killed him. The only exception was the head of the staff, the chief counsel, uh, whose name is Bob Blakely, who I know very well, who's a friend of mine. And Bob Blakely believed it was the mafia, or most likely. And they didn't know the mafia and uh, and the CIA were now kind of one seamless organization because of the Castro assassination projects. And uh, but Blakey has since changed his mind because we've since learned that, you know, of, of all the involvement of all these CIA officers in the Warren Commission cover up and in the cover up at the, to the state assassination committee. So Blakey now believes that it was the CIA almost certainly that killed my uncle. The best reading that you can do on this, the best source of information is a book called uh, The Unspeakable by James Douglas. And he's done an extraordinary, he's a scholar that's, uh, who's done an extraordinary job of distilling probably a million pages of documents and many, many, you know, I think over 20 people have, uh, who were involved in my uncle's assassination have given confessions. Now, a lot of them were deathbed confessions. Uh, but the evidence is, I'd say, beyond any reasonable doubt that the CIA was involved in that murder. Um, going just to, to complete the thought that we began with, the smith Mullen Act made it illegal for the CIA to propagandize Americans. But right after that committee, during those committee hearings, we learned that the CIA had an operation called Operation Mockingbird which had recruited 400 American reporters, including senior editors at the New York Times, the Washington Post, at ABC, CBS, and all the major news outlets who were working for the CIA and who were propagandizing American people. And the CIA at that time, when this became exposed, and the, the, you know, the best thing to read about that is an article in 1983 that Carl Bernstein who was one of the Watergate reporters in 84, I think, uh, did for Rolling Stone, where he goes through all of the assets that the CIA owned, the how the CIA was controlling the American press. After that came out, the CIA said, we're not going to do it anymore. Wow. And they, But they're still the number one funder of journalism around the world. They do that through USAID. So they, they spend $10 billion a year controlling journalism in Africa, Asia, and Europe. They own many major magazines, newspapers. They have assets in all these countries. 
And in 2016, President Obama um, issues an executive order that in essence repeals, in effect, repeals the Smith-Munt Act. The CIA once again was now allowed supposedly um, to propagandize Americans. And, you know, there's been many, many articles that show how uh, the CIA has gained control of some of the major journals in our country. There's a wonderful set of articles by um, Dick Russell, the historian, who shows uh, that the CIA now controls uh, Daily Beast, Salon, Slate, um, Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone, which is, you know, the big counterculture. Yeah. Uh, magazine is Not now more. run by a guy called Noah Schlackman, who is, um, you know, who is a intelligence agency asset and, uh, and many, many others. It's incredibly fascinating. And there's so much more I wanted to talk to you about, including you mentioned Obama <laughs> there. I wanted to ask about President Obama and what he did with bioweapons to uh, prevent some things that were going on on home soil, particularly in Texas and North Carolina, how those moved overseas, how that plays into what's happening in Ukraine and with that. We could talk all day, and I'm so sorry we didn't, because uh, I know I have to let you let you go. We didn't get to talk about falconry either, but uh, we'll do that some other time. I'm so fascinated by by falconry, but I want people to go to your website because you very clearly describe your policies, uh, economic policies, uh, health policies. Um, you talk about all these different uh, things, and and the border. If people, if, I think it's it's between 15 and 20 minutes. The video that you do on the border is probably uh, the most thorough and concise, being just just short of 20 minutes, I believe, um, uh, description of what's going on down there and how to deal with it than I've seen seen anywhere. Um, and I think I, I try to stay up to date on, on a lot of these things, but um, I, I encourage people to, to go there, watch that video in particular, watch all the other ones to get a good idea of, of your platforms, your priorities, um, the, the health policy, is fascinating uh and what you say at the end of that that video about uh not re-electing you if uh if you haven't um haven't dealt with uh, the chronic health issues uh in the country but once again didn't get to pretty much uh most of the things that i had written down here but we'll we'll we'll, we'll catch up on it all some other time because i know you have to go and i've already kept you over but um what are the things that uh you'd like to leave this audience with as you move forward here. And I know you have a paper, uh, your policy no, uh, on Israel coming out soon in the next the next few days. Maybe by the time this drops, that'll be that'll be out. But uh, what do you want to leave uh, viewers with? You know what, Jack, I'd love to come back and, and talk some more. Why don't we do that? Like after my Israel thing drops. Jack, thanks so much for having me. It's really it's just a treat for me. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you in person soon. Let's do it. Let's do it. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you and uh, and your family for everything that you uh, have done through. Uh, we have a middle child with really severe special needs who needs 24-7 full-time care forever. Everything your family has done with Special Olympics and American Disabilities Act. And uh, that just means so much to me and my family. So I wanted to make sure that I that I thanked you and your family. Thank you, Jack. Absolutely. You take care and uh, we'll talk you. soon. Thank you for your service to our country and your, you know, you're, you're the inspiration you've given to so many of us and uh, the terminal list and I read, you know, all of these incredible contributions to literature. Thank you very much. Oh, appreciate that. Take care and we'll uh, hopefully we'll link up in person here soon.
I've been a fan of Black Rifle Coffee Company since their inception. I love when veterans leave the military and pursue their passion. In this case, coffee. The coffee is fantastic, and as an added benefit, the company is built on quality, patriotism, and giving back to the veteran and first responder communities. I've been a subscriber to the BRCC Coffee Club for years and love it. My favorite is Silencer Smooth. It gets delivered every single month. The Black Rifle Coffee Club. Being part of the club gives you the power to elevate your coffee experience to the next level. The Black Rifle Coffee Club puts you in the driver's seat. You pick the texture and the roast you want, the frequency you want it delivered, and the quantity. You get to completely personalize your club orders, ensuring that your favorite coffee is sent to your door exactly how you want it, when you want it. Right now, Black Rifle Coffee is offering an exclusive opportunity for new coffee club members. Join today and enjoy 30% off your first order when you use the discount code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. That's right, 30% off just for being a part of our growing coffee community. Remember to use the discount code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Going to start right over here with this Vault-Tec safe. I've been wanting to try one of these for a long time, so I'm fired up that this has arrived, and that is VaultTechSafe.com. So thank you guys so much for sending this. And what is this? This looks like an indestructible belt made in the USA, veteran-owned and operated Max Belts. So that is MaxBelts.com, and then Max underscore belts on Instagram. But this thing, it just seems like a weapon in and of itself. So I'm fired up to give this a run. So thank you so much for sending this. And I understand Norm Hooten has one of these as well from Hooten Young Whiskey. And uh, yeah, good company with that. So sincerely appreciate that. And Patrick Scullin, look at this, at Patrick Scullin. And check out that artwork right there. Has a Winkler Tomahawk in there. And what? Little Magnum P.I., Solid. So thank you so much for sending these along. These are awesome. And uh, Patrick Scullin. And blades. Got a couple blades today. But this one, ooh, look at that. So this is from Doc Schiffer, S-H-I-F-F-E-R, Doc Schiffer Knives, at Doc Schiffer on Instagram. And even put a little trident on there for me. So very cool. This thing is pretty killer. So thank you so much for passing this along. And since I'm on Knives, Montana Knife Company, oh, look at that. Love what Josh Smith is doing up there at Montana Knife Company. This thing, I think it might be the biggest uh, Montana Knife Company blade that I have. There might be one that's bigger, but regardless, this thing's pretty solid. So thank you for sending this along. And check out Montana Knife Company. Follow them on the social channels. And SIG, oh yeah. So right here, this is the P210. Oh, love this. And if you read the last novel, Only the Dead, you might remember that this was in there. One from Bruce Gray, Bruiser Industries, uh, which is not what this is, though I think I have one of those coming. But the 210 just feels nice. A lot of great history right here as well. So thank you, Sig. Check them out. And Schnees, Schnees.com. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I've been wearing Schnees boots for over a decade, the granites are the ones that I like to use when I go into the backcountry and plan on coming out heavier with something on my back. But uh, I have a, quite a few of their boots now. And this is a, a new pair that I just picked up last weekend up in Bozeman. And I'll be check wearing these this, uh, this winter around town here in Park 
city. So check out Schnee's. And if you're passing through Bozeman, you can go in there, get fitted for a boot. They're so knowledgeable when it comes to footwear and socks. I picked these up as well when I was in Bozeman uh, at the Schnee's store, which is an amazing store, by the way. So for sure, go in and check it out when you're there. Uh, but these are Duckworth socks right here. And uh, I've been wearing the Duckworth stuff. I think I got my first uh, Duckworth uh, shirt probably 10 years ago as well. And uh, maybe maybe seven or eight, somewhere along there. But but I love it. Awesome. I've been wearing it skiing for a long time. Great base layer, but uh, check them out. Looking forward to giving these socks a run as well. And if you can't make it to Bozeman, just give Schnee's a call and tell them what you're going to be doing and uh, uh, where you're going, what time of year, and they'll talk you through all the different boots and get you taken care of. So schnee's.com, check them out. And huh, the second Magnum reference of the gear segment right here. R Watch Co. So that's what it is on Instagram. R Watch Co. And look at that. This is, oh yeah, the Magnum. And no, it's not, not the Rolex, but this is their version. A uh, little Magnum Vive Seiko right here. And awesome. I wore this all last week. Absolutely love it. Thank you guys so much. Uh, if you've been following me, you know that I'm a watch guy, obviously. And G-Shock right here book but uh this thing's pretty sick and a little nod to our vietnam era seals right there for those in the know so check them out once again that is our watch co on instagram and it came in this cool little case awesome well done guys very cool and at book signings i tend to get a lot of honey and whiskey and uh Please don't stop, by the way. But this is from Bondurant Brothers Distillery. I was in Virginia last week doing a book signing and a talk at the Virginia War Memorial. And somebody dropped this off, and I sincerely appreciate it. And I'll be cracking this open tonight. So very cool. Bondurant Brothers Distillery, Virginia Straight Bourbon Whiskey. So give them a look. And let's see. Since we're on drinks, Black Raffle Coffee Company, this is the Gothic Serpent, and you can sign up for their signature coffee club. And look at that, different coffee every month, and also comes with a sticker and some directions. So you know how to make it different ways. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Black Raffle Coffee Company, check them out. And they also have a sticker club for the sticker people out there. And this is Black Raffle Coffee Company, born primitive this month right here. So Black Rifle Coffee Company has been drinking their coffee for a long time and absolutely love it. So there we go. And Los Angeles Police Department, Venice Narcotics Division right here. And man, thank you guys for sending this along. Mike, really appreciate it. Everybody that wears the uniform out there and holds the line, sincerely appreciate all you do. And uh, this will go in a special spot. So take care out there. Thanks guys, really appreciate it. And moving on, here we go. So this is Dynamis, ho, 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 the combat flathead. And right there, they might be all sold out by the time this drops, but look at that little Gen 2 uh, Jack Carr Dynamis Alliance collaboration. And right there, Cross Tomahawks, I don't know if you can see it in the video, but right here, love this thing. This thing is indestructible. James Reese uses it in my novels. Dom Rosso designed this and we were at SEAL Team 2 together a few years back and yeah, every American needs 100% made in the USA. And also comes in this box with stickers. And moving on to 
Watches of Espionage. Follow Watches of Espionage if you're a, a watch guy. Um, you don't have to be a watch guy. You can be into intelligence and military. Uh, but great newsletter. Absolutely love reading everyone that comes out. And look at that. This is a band right here. And so doing amazing stuff right there. Look at that. It can open beers. Oh, yeah. Or sodas. But uh, thank you guys so much. Watch his espionage. Be sure and follow them and sign up for that newsletter. I absolutely love it. And there, there they are. Watches of espionage. And what else do I have here? Navy water polo. You guys, thank you so much for sending this stuff along. Really appreciate it. And uh, keep crushing out there. Look at that. Navy water polo. Awesome. And because it's Naval Academy and some will be going on into the Marine Corps. Look at that one. Right there, Navy water polo, solid. Uh, almost there, what is this? Eric Bishop, my friend, his uh, latest book here, Ransomed Daughter, so uh, from the author of The Body Man. Eric, thank you so much for sending this, and you're very thoughtful. This is the third Magnum reference. What? Oh, yeah, so pretty cool. Eric, thanks so much for sending that. Really appreciate it, my friend. And since we're on books, it's not out yet. But it's coming. Finally, uh, the next Terry Hayes book. So if you read I Am Pilgrim and loved it, and you were waiting for the next book to come out the next year, it's been about a decade or so. It is out, or coming out, and this is the galley copy. So this is an early edition that I am very fortunate enough to be able to read, and it's called The Year of the Locust. So I uh, can't wait to dive into this. I've been waiting for a long time, as have many of you. Super excited that this is now out. So Terry Hayes, The Year of the Locust. And if you haven't read I Am Pilgrim, there's a chance for you to read that before this comes out in early 2024. So um, please do. And Christian Craighead uh, illustrated Matthew Klein, The Wrong Wolf. If you don't know who Christian Craighead is, you can uh, just... Use the Google machine and find out what he did in Nairobi a few years back. It's absolutely incredible. He has another book that may or may not come out. We shall see. And uh, when it does, he'll be coming on the podcast to talk about it. So uh, check it out. The Wrong Wolf right here. SAS operator. Um, did some incredible things in Nairobi, Kenya a few years back. So be sure and check it out and follow him on the social channels as well. And I did talk about the G-Shock book. This thing is pretty cool for those of us who went downrange over the last 20 years. Uh, at some point, there was probably a G-Shock on your wrist. So, uh, very cool book, A History of the G-Shock, right here. And I think that is everything. All right. Until the next time, take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., be sure and visit kennedy 24 Dot com and follow him on Instagram at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and on Twitter X at Robert Kennedy Jr. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. OfficialJackCar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right hand corner for the merch. And if you got something out of this conversation, be sure and leave a five star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.